In the middle of the 1970s, Muhammad Ali was at the height of his boxing career. And Ali was known for being a bit arrogant in his approach, cocky in his responses to the press. And uh, one story has him flying from Chicago to Las Vegas, Nevada. He's on an airplane, he sits down, but he doesn't buckle his seatbelt. So the flight attendant courteously comes up to the boxer and says, Sir, we cannot take off until you fasten your seatbelt. To which he arrogantly replied, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she smiled and courteously responded, Hey, Superman don't need no airplane. (laughs) The Superman Syndrome. It's something we have all struggled with, especially right before we fall. Pride comes before a fall. A haughty spirit before destruction. The disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ are facing a failure. It's coming up. They will scatter. One will deny. One has already betrayed But for these eleven that are with Jesus on this last night before his crucifixion, it will not be a permanent fall. They will get up again. They will learn how to stand strong in days ahead. All of us fail from time to time. In fact, it's one of the things we worry about. Dream experts tell us that the most common type of dream is called an anxiety dream. It's about an event that you could possibly fail in. It could be a test coming up, a job interview. It could be having to stand up and give a speech before a crowd. It's on the top three things that people are afraid to do. And the truth is, we all from time to time, even spiritual people, will have failure and setbacks in their lives. We actually begin life that way. The first time you tried to walk, you failed. You don't remember it, and your parents thought you did better than the astronauts walking on the moon, but you fell down. The first time you tried to swim, you probably almost drowned. Most kids do. When they put a baseball bat in your hands and toss the ball, you didn't hit it the first time, I doubt it. You didn't get straight A's on your first report card. If you did, nobody liked you. And I bet that there have been times in your Christian walk where you have not been the best of witnesses for the Lord. Listen to this story of one who failed. He failed in his business in 1831. He was defeated for the legislature in 1832, elected to the legislature in 34. His sweetheart died in 35. He had a nervous breakdown in 36 and was defeated for the speaker in 38. He was defeated for elector in 40, defeated for Congress in 43, elected to Congress in 46, again defeated for Congress in 48, defeated for the Senate in 1850, defeated for vice president in 56, and for the Senate in 58. But this man, Abraham Lincoln, in 1860, became the President of the United States. 
Now, he's the guy that we would say, there's the Superman. Truth is, he was a failure first. Because a failure isn't somebody who tries and falls. A failure is somebody who gives up trying altogether. Now, we're going to look at the last two verses, really, but three verses of chapter 16, and we're going to consider the disciples and their failure. I want to say that if you have fallen, if you have failed, and if you are in the midst of it this morning, you can get up. You can be restored. In fact, you can be victorious. Do you remember that commercial a few years back? It was a geriatric commercial. I'll never forget it. I forget what they were advertising, but I remember the phrase, I've fallen and I can't get up. You can if you're a disciple. Don't let failure be your undertaker. Let it be your teacher. Would you look with me at verse 30? The disciples are speaking. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. I find Jesus' response very insightful. Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We begin this morning with a declaration of faith. The faith purported by the disciples. It is a public declaration. It is the last declaration of their faith before Jesus dies. We believe, the Greek, pistuomen, a declaration of our faith. It was a presumptuous declaration, as their actions will bear out later on. It was, a, it was a, a great thing to say. They meant well. Yes, they believed Jesus was the Messiah. They believed He came from heaven. The problem was they had some unrealistic expectations of Jesus. Remember, we've said a couple of times in this series, these disciples did not expect the cross. They expected the kingdom. They thought any day now, any minute now, He's going to set up His kingdom and that's why they had been arguing as to who would be the greatest. They thought he's going to pick leadership positions. We want to be next to him in this kingdom. They had expectations of Jesus that Jesus never intended on fulfilling. Now, we say we believe in him. But could it be that we have some expectation of God that he never promised to fulfill? I meet people like this. Well, they told me if I came to Christ, I'd never be sad. I'd always be happy. I always have money to pay my bills, even if I overspent. Um, never get sick. Always have straight teeth. Whatever. Misplaced expectations. Or there is the crowd that says, have you received your miracle today? What, are they daily doled out? Either A, they don't understand what the word miracle means, or they're going to be awfully disappointed when they don't get theirs in that 24-hour period. 
I found something interesting from a publication called Religion Watch a couple years back. It was based on a study. Listen to it. Pentecostals are three times more likely than any other Christians to experience major depression, according to a Vanderbilt University study. Now that completely threw me. But listen as it goes on. The overall group, 2,850 North Carolinians over a six-month period, experienced serious depression at a rate of 1.7%, whereas the rate among Pentecostals was 5.4%. The researchers surmise that the higher rate may be partly because people who are already depressed are attracted to Pentecostalism's emphasis on spiritual and physical healing. Now, my intention in reading that wasn't to knock one particular Christian persuasion, but simply to say that it's easy to say we believe, but the question is exactly what do you believe in? His word or your agenda? And what's more, if your agenda doesn't get met, are you going to take your ball and go home? I expected God to do that for me. He didn't do it. I quit. The disciples make a bold declaration of their faith to which Jesus brings a penetrating question. Do you now believe? He knew these guys. Uh, They were self-confident right now, as Peter is in these last moments, the other Gospels tell us. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Whoever thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Or as the old proverb says, He who looks up to admire his own halo is apt to create nothing more than a pain in the neck. (laughs) Uh, So we can pat ourselves on the back. I'm a believer. Now following this declaration comes a prediction. Jesus, after the question, says in verse 32, Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Here they are, so sure of their faith, but Jesus has a few predictions of his own about these confident ones. Now, if you were to compare Matthew and Mark's rendition of this last evening... When Jesus predicts they're all going to deny him, they're all going to fail, they're all going to fall, Peter butts in, if you remember. Peter interrupts Jesus' train of thought. He says, Lord, uh, if everyone else denies you, not me. A very interesting guy. Lord, you're very insightful. You have a very good read on the other guys. They're failures. I've always known it. But Lord, don't include me in this group. You don't know me. Peter is very self-sufficient. Ring a bell? Not me. You can count on me. I found the words of Charles Spurgeon very insightful concerning spiritual failure. He says, the falls are mostly of middle-aged or elderly people. We have hardly in Scripture an instance of anyone young turning aside. The reason is, I think, because when we are weak, then we are strong. But when we conceive ourselves to be strong, we become weak. Jesus makes two predictions. Number one, they're going to be scattered, each to his own. 
Now they had each other up to this point. There was a fellowship of 11 men with their master. Judas had betrayed, but they were with him in his severest trial. And they had the strength of that fellowship one with another, though the hostility of the Pharisees and Sadducees was mounting against Christ and them, they still had the strength of fellowship with one another. But soon, the temple guards will be in the Garden of Gethsemane and arrest Jesus, and they will scamper the disciples like scared sheep back over the Mount of Olives, a few into the city of Jerusalem, hiding for any place of safety. In Matthew 26, Jesus predicts, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, now listen to the prediction from Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. We believe, Lord, do you? You're about to be scattered. One time I was in India and before I went, it was my first trip. You know, I thought I knew all about persecution. After all, they laughed at my bumper sticker here in America. That was pretty, pretty tough. Then I went over to a country that deals with persecution like you and I get a hamburger. It's everywhere. There's radical groups against believers in these countries. And one afternoon we set up with some of our indigenous friends and we had the guitar out in the streets and we had gathered a crowd and Several evangelists were sharing the gospel in their native tongue. I was speaking in my native tongue with an interpreter. And um, then I noticed something strange develop. Another crowd around that crowd surrounded us. And they didn't have smiles on their faces. They had frowns on their faces. And it was an ominous enough sight for me to ask the interpreter, what's going on? He says, we are about to be persecuted. Come again? You mean like the real kind? That's right. They're going to beat us up. Oh, great. Thank you. Now, I'm not used to this, so I'm thinking, well, I'm a little taller. I got a little bit longer legs. I can outrun any of them. I felt like running away. And how often we run away from the strength of the fellowship of believers. The very time things get tough is the very time we need to be in fellowship with other believers and that's the time we go, I'm leaving. And we remove ourselves from that place of strength. We tell young believers all the time and we need to tell older believers as well, you can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. It's like coals in a barbecue in the summer. They're together giving and receiving heat from each other. If you remove a coal from that barbecue, it's going to die out quickly. But you keep them together and it will continuously burn for a long time. You're going to be scattered, Jesus tells them. Another thing Jesus at least implies here is they're going to be confused in their faith. And that's implied by that question right before verse 32 and verse 31 do you now believe? You see, they make this bold declaration of faith, but in a few hours, they're going to doubt the faith that they have in Jesus. There's a couple of disciples that will be on the road to Emmaus who don't know Jesus is risen from the dead who are going to speak of their hope in Jesus as a past tense event. But we had hoped in Him that He would have been the one to redeem Israel their faith will be shaken to its very core. And I'm sure that I'm speaking to some this morning who've had their faith shaken 
They made a bold declaration. At least at one time, you were in the sunshine of clarity. You knew who Jesus was. You were anxious to give to every man an answer for the hope that lies in you. You couldn't wait, but, but lately you haven't been so sure. It's been clouded. You've been scattered to different crowds, unbelievers, crowds at the university, crowds at the workplace who have given enough influence and spoken enough things into your ear where now you go, well, I wonder what exactly I believe in. Jesus tells these faithful men, you will be scattered, you will be confused. But, here's the good part, verse 33, he ends with a promise. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Literally, cheer up, guys. I have overcome the world. What I find beautiful is that as soon as Jesus exposes their imminent failure, oh, really, you believe me? You're about to be scattered. As soon as he exposes their imminent failure, he closes them with a promise of peace, of the ability to overcome because He loves them. Verse 33 is the summary of chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, that whole upper room discourse. It's the summary statement. It's the, um, it's the purpose clause. That's what it is in the Greek language. It uses the word hina, which is in order that. I have just spoken all of these things, beginning in chapter 13, boys. All of these promises in order that, or by these promises that I've given you, you would have peace. Now, what things had he just spoken to them? Here's a quick review. Chapter 13, he spoke of his love for them by washing their feet, by being their servant. All of that was a parable of his pouring out his life for them on the cross in the next few hours. Chapter 14, he promised them heaven. I'm leaving, but I'm going to prepare a place to you for you, and I'm going to come again and receive you to myself, so you have a guaranteed place in the kingdom. Then he promised the Holy Spirit would come, would be with them, would be in them, would work through them, would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Then he said, I'm leaving, but the work's going to continue through you, and you're going to do greater works than me because you're going to carry this message universally around the globe. And you're going to be fruitful as you abide in me. And then finally, he spoke of prayer. You can come directly to the Father in my name, and when you ask for these things in my name, you're going to get them. So all of these things that I've spoken to you who are about to be shaken in your faith, who are about to be scattered, I've given you these things that you might have peace. I want you to think about that, what I just said for a moment. Because some of us still have this mistaken notion that peace means the absence of conflict. You know, peace is the Bermudas. I'm on the beach, man, the French Riviera. There's palm trees and it's life is good. There's just calm all around my life. That's peace. No, it's not, according to Jesus. Peace is experienced for these disciples, at least it's promised, in the midst of their being scattered and confused, in the midst of the tribulation. I've spoken these promises to you that you might have peace in me. Did you know that some of the greatest songs of the church were written during the worst times of a person's life who wrote them? 
the best hymns that we have that express faith weren't written on the beach in the Bahamas. They were written in the trenches and the ditches of suffering. You know, every Billy Graham crusade, do you remember the song that's sung at the end? What is it? Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That was written by Charlotte Elliott soon after she became an invalid. And her trust in the Lord became deeper than ever before. And she experienced God's peace. My favorite story of this is a story that dates back to 1847. When a housewife from Chicago with her three children was sailing from America on a French sailing vessel and that ship collided with a, another vessel in the Atlantic and both ships began to sink pretty fast. The lawyer in Chicago, Horatio Spafford was his name, decided that his family should have some R&R without him, that he would join them over in Europe soon thereafter. You go first, I'll meet you. As the ship was sinking, the mother took her three children. They went to their knees. They were believers. And they said, Lord, please save us. We don't want to die. But if we are about to die, then give us strength to face it well. All three children were killed. The mother survived. She was taken by a rowboat to Cardiff in Wales. Ten days later, she wired her husband back in the United States. Two words were in the wire. Imagine how his heart broke as he read these two words, saved alone. The next day he got on a boat and he was sailing to join his wife. As they crossed in the next few days the spot in the Atlantic Ocean where the children were killed, he was told by the captain. He walked aboard the deck of the boat and he thought of some words that he penned They became a hymn. He wrote down these words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control, that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. Those were not penned on a beach in the Riviera. They were penned in the Atlantic Ocean where a man's children had been killed. It is well with my soul. In the midst of this tribulation, Jesus promises peace and victory. For he says... In the world, you're going to have anxiety. That's the word pressure, philipsis in the Greek, to be crushed. And then, Jesus has the audacity. He goes, cheer up, boys. Be of good cheer. Because I have overcome this world. This morning, you are either an overcomer of the world or you are overcome by the world. Which is it? There's a couple of different ways that Christians, I think, deal with this world in in overcoming it. One is okay, the other is better. Let me tell you what they are. The first is compensation. 
The other is transformation. I'll explain. Compensation is where we compensate for the pain in the world by diverting our thoughts to the future world. This world is bad, 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 evil. Bad things are happening all around me. And it's just so bad, I'm just going to have to clench my fists and grit my teeth and just bear it and make it true, thinking one day I'll be in heaven, it'll be better. Okay? You can live that way. It's not the best way to live, but you can do that. That's compensation. The other is called transformation. You take that part of your life, that Atlantic Ocean where the children went down, and you turn that into a place of refreshment in your Lord. Rather than grimacing all the way through, you make that spot a place of fellowship, of intimacy with God. Like the psalmist said, as we go from our place on the way to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, these worshipers make the valley of Baca their spring. That valley of dryness. Valley of tribulation. Right there we find refreshment. How do we do that? Well, I found something in these verses that I want you to look at. Verse 33, there's a little phrase. These things I have spoken to you that, what? In me. In me you may have peace. That's very important to the meaning. You're not saying, I'm just telling you this stuff so that you'll be peaceful. No, you can't be peaceful unless you're in me. Because notice what it says after that. In the world you'll have tribulation. So get it. You have in the world and you have in Christ. And that's where you, if you're a believer, are this morning. You're in the world, but you're also in Christ. Now, if you see yourself as just in the world, you'll grimace. I'm go to heaven one day, but I'll just make it through. But if you see yourself in the world, but in Christ in the world, and you have that fellowship of abiding. Remember chapter 15 uses this terminology all the way through. We studied it. Abide in me and I in you. The branch in the vine, abide in my love. That place of close intimacy with your Lord provides that place of refreshment in the world. That's transformation. 1932 was a hard year. Now, I don't know this by personal experience. I wasn't around then, but I heard it was a terrible year, especially in the Midwest. There was a drought. Grasshoppers and other bugs came to destroy the plant life. The temperature soared over 100 for several days in that part of the country. And there was a particular establishment in South Dakota that was about to close its doors. It was so bad. It was a little drugstore called Wall Drug, South Dakota. Anybody ever heard of or traveled to Wall Drug? So you know, you're already starting to get, oh, really? I've been there before. Let me tell you the story. Ted and Dorothy Husted were the owners. They were believers in Christ. They thought, we're going to have to close our doors, I guess. But what could we do to get people in the middle of a drought and a shortfall to come to our drugstore in the middle of nowhere. On a good day, there's 800 residents that live around the area. So they decided to advertise. They went out 25 miles in four directions and put up a sign, only 25 miles to Wall Drug, South Dakota, free ice water. Big deal, right? Drugstores have been given ice water for years, free. 
But nobody advertised it. Then they went in about 10 miles and said, you're only 10 miles away to free ice water at Waldrug, then five miles. Only five more miles to free ice water at Waldrug, South Dakota. Now they got so carried away with this, they went to Albany, New York, put up a sign. <laughs> only 1,725 miles to Waldrug, South Dakota, for free ice water. And if you've ever been there today, I was there a few years back, you see these crazy signs for hundreds of miles. Until pretty soon you think, what is this Waldrug, South Dakota? I've got to go check it out. In the height of tourist season now, 15,000 people a day visit Waldrug, South Dakota. Here's the point. Pain is inevitable in life. Misery is optional. Will you transform that trial, that struggle, that doubt, that failure into a place of fellowship? Yesterday, I buried a good friend of ours. She has been a friend ever since we left Southern California and moved here. She's been a part of our fellowship here for a long time, very involved. And she suffered a lot. She struggled. I mean, she had every surgery and disease known to man, I think. But she'd never show it. She always had a a poise and a grace and a joy. There were times that it was painful for her to hug somebody, but she wouldn't let you know it. She'd hug you very gently, but she'd do it and smile. She lived well. Today she's in heaven. A lot of people die with a question mark. She died with an exclamation point. We know where she's at. And she faced all of the ups and downs in her life with a very simple and tenacious, I trust in these things that He's spoken to me. And therefore I have peace. And though the pain is inevitable, the the misery is optional and I'm not going to go there. This morning, if you are one who has failed your Lord, if you have been shaken in your faith, the Lord understands that. And here at this communion table, it's a time to deal with it and to ask Him to restore you and to make you stand strong once again. Okay, your cage has been rattled by unbelievers perhaps. But get the cage fixed. Don't run away. Don't scatter and stay there. Come back into the fellowship with your Lord. Ask Him to forgive you if need be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the weeks that we have spent in this upper room discourse. The words Jesus spoke to His men the night before He was betrayed or the night before He was crucified. The very night He spoke these beautiful words of prayer in John chapter 17. And Father, we think of all these things we have learned, all these things that have been spoken by the Lord Jesus to us. There is no reason that we shouldn't have peace. There's no reason that we shouldn't have the joy that He spoke about. There's no reason that we shouldn't be overcomers because Jesus overcame the prince of this world, its very ruler. Why should we be afraid of a vanquished foe? So we can stand, Lord, victorious and strong today. And Lord, we ask You to forgive us for our 
arrogance, our failure, our doubt. We need you, Lord. In Jesus' name.